Um, this is on page 1114 in your pew Bibles uh, if uh, you want to follow along. I'm reading from verse, uh, verses 1 through verse 10. After we were brought safely through, we then turned, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this chance to uh, gather as your people. We thank you for your invitation uh, to be in worship this Sabbath day, and we thank you for uh, your your word. Uh, we pray um, this morning as we gather around your word that your Holy Spirit would be present and that you would speak your word to us uh, clearly and truly. I pray that um, as we listen to your word that we would be equipped for the work that you have called us to that we would fall more in love with you, and that we would be uh, knitted more closely with one another. And I do pray these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm wearing my robe today, which I don't always do in this service. In the, in the late service, I, I wear it more often. It's called a Geneva robe, and I'm wearing it today because today is Reformation Sunday. All right? Reformation Sunday... I. Okay, it's the Sunday uh, that's the anniversary of when uh, Martin Luther nailed his theses up on the door of the Wittenberg uh, Cathedral, which started a process of the church evaluating uh, what it had been teaching and what its practices were. Uh, the result of the beginning of that process, of course, was what we call uh, the Lutheran Church. And then subsequently, the, Re the Reformed Church in Switzerland emerged. We, as Presbyterians, come out of out of that part of the Reformation. Uh, John Calvin uh, is the leader of that part of the Reformation. But but we we look back at this day to remember that God is a God who is active in history. And that God didn't simply uh, put things into motion, but that He remained involved with things over the over the course of of the life of the church, and He remains involved uh, with the with the church today. Uh, 
it is traditional in a Reformed church or in a Presbyterian church to wear a garment like this because during the time of the Reformation, this was the working clothes of a lawyer and John Calvin was a lawyer. Now, if John Calvin had been a carpenter, I'd be wearing overalls up here. Okay. The point was is that this is not an ecclesiastical garb. It's not a priestly garb, but it's just the clothes of a working man. Okay. So John Calvin wasn't a priest. He was a lawyer by by profession. That's what he did to make his living. And when he was then called to preach, he still remained just a regular guy. He wasn't elevated in any special way. And so he simply wore his working clothes into the pulpit. Okay, the modern version of this would be wearing a business suit. Or, if you happen to be a farmer, wearing your, wearing your overalls. So, I wear this in recognition of, uh, of the Protestant Reformation, uh, which, uh, is the, the tradition that we stand, uh, in. And thinking about, uh, Reformation this past week, I was thinking about the characteristics of the church that are what make us who we truly are. In the Protestant Reformation, there was a wrestling for the soul of the church. There were people in the church who felt like the church had lost its way, that it had lost its focus. And I think it's good for us to remind ourselves of what it is that is fundamental about the church and to keep going back to, the, to those fundamentals. So this morning, I want to talk about... Um, one of the fundamental characters of the church, and I want to do that by drawing your attention to the Great Commission. This is in uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, a very familiar passage. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." So the Great Commission is is the great sending out of the apostles. It is, in a sense, the beginning of the church. All right. So uh, Jesus has spent all the time that he's going to spend on earth, and now he's sending out his his disciples to continue the work that that he's begun. And I want you to notice um, a couple of words and a, and, a, and a single phrase in uh, in in this Great Commission, and that's the word disciple. And disciples. So the eleven disciples, Judas of course is dead at this point. The eleven disciples go to Galilee and the first part of the instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples is to make disciples. Go and make disciples. Okay, you're disciples, now go and make disciples. Alright? So what is it to be a disciple? Well, a disciple is just a churchy word for a student. Probably we should just replace the word disciple with student 
uh, and we would have a closer idea of what we're talking about. A disciple is someone who studies under under the master. All right. So there's the disciple, and there's the teacher. Uh, there are eleven disciples. They become the uh, they become the apostles, and the instructions to these disciples is that they themselves turn around and start making other disciples. And then in verse twenty, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Okay. So the disciples are students. And the disciples are going to go make other students and they are going to teach them all the things that Jesus has commanded them. What I would like to suggest to you is that in the Great Commission, we have the definition of the church as a school. This is a schoolhouse. And the definition of Christians as Students, sometimes we call ourselves disciples of Christ. I don't know why we don't call ourselves students of Christ. It would be just a good, just as good a translation. So the church is a school and Christians are schools. Now, of course, the church does other things besides uh, simply educational things. It's not all about teaching and learning. We also come to church uh, to fellowship with our friends. We also come together for times of worship and uh, and singing. We also alleviate suffering and promote justice in the world. But the core of our identity is that we are this school where we are students of the teachings of Christ. At its core, the church is a school where disciples make and teach new disciples. The church is a school where people who have been schooled, school unschooled people. That that sentence is actually true if you were to parse it out. So... What then is it that the church teaches? Jesus gives us the curriculum, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the curriculum of the church. The job of the church is to make disciples, and what the content of, of their discipleship is teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. And where do we meet that? Well, we meet that in the teaching of the apostles. That's precisely what the apostles uh, have done. Okay, we our faith is the deposit of the apostles. The apostles taught uh, other disciples what it is that Jesus had taught them. Uh, Acts chapter two, verse forty-two. A little description of the baby church. Okay, the church. This is after the day of Pentecost. The church is booming. And there's a little description there in Acts chapter 2 about what the church is doing. And in verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. Okay? So, the devotion of the church is to the teaching of the apostles, which is everything that Jesus had commanded the first disciples to teach. Well, where do we find that teaching. Well, we find that teaching in, in the pages of Scripture. One of the fundamental principles of the Reformation was that our faith needs to be based upon Scripture alone. It's not Scripture plus the traditions of man. It's scriptures of lo- Scripture alone because in the Scripture we have the teaching of the Apostle. Now, 
There is basic teaching and there's advanced teaching. There is, you know, grammar school and there's graduate school in the Christian world as well. There is a basic doctrine that the church teaches and anybody can uh, absorb and receive and respond to that basic doctrine. Maybe you remember the story of Peter being in the jail at Philippi and an angel busts him out of jail that night. And as a result of that, Peter is with the jailer and the family of the jailer. And in just one night of conversation or talking or I don't know what you call it that that Peter would have been doing there preaching. Probably not preaching. But in that one night, that Philippian jailer and his family learn enough about Jesus in order to be born again. Okay, so the the core of our doctrine is simple enough that, yeah, you can deliver it in one message. Yeah, a, a child can understand uh, the 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 basic doctrine uh, uh, of Christianity. But sometimes the Bible talks about the difference between the milk and the meat of the teaching of the apostles. There is milk. Babies can digest it. You can get it in one one go on one evening. But there's also meat in the, uh, what's that called? The Presbyterian Stokey Society. We've been working through the book of Hebrews, uh, which is a very... Um, complicated. Is it complicated, Jordan? It's a, it's a challenging book. We're being really challenged in there. Uh, but in Hebrews chapter five, uh, there, we hear, we read this about this. We have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing for though by this time you ought to be teachers Okay, you start as a disciple, but then disciples make other disciples. Disciples become teachers. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What the church teaches in some sense is really basic. And you can teach it to the children. And you can teach it to the simple minded. But we shouldn't stop with the basics. We shouldn't be satisfied with the basics. In fact, there's some meat that we can dig into. Paul talks about the same thing um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He writes, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the, you are not of the flesh and behaving only, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So there are the simple aspects of the gospel, but there's also the meatier aspects of the gospel. The church is a school where People are trained where disciples become teachers and then those teachers become uh, uh, raise up new disciples. Now, notice what the milky, fleshy, infant 
children Christians are like. It's not so much that they lack the head knowledge, but they actually lack the heart knowledge. I'm going to go back and take a look at this, but uh, I want you to notice that Paul's concern about the state of the Corinthian heart and the, the writer of Hebrews concerned about his readers is not that they haven't necessarily learned things with their intellect, but their characters haven't been formed. Okay, so Paul says, uh, you are still of the flesh. That means they're not governed by the spirit. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says that uh, they, uh, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There is this problem that sometimes we learn things with our head, but we're not putting them into practice. There are two sides to the discipleship. There's a sort of the theory, and then there's how we enact that theory in our lived lives, okay? Maybe, uh, you know, in in, uh, in a sport, you would have a coach who would teach you the theory of the game, but ultimately you're going to need to get on the court or get on the field and work it out in practice. And it's in that actual enacting of it that all of the theory then begins to take place. In worship, we have a lot of dispensing of theory, okay? The preaching is conversation about the theory, and if we stop with that, and also sometimes Sunday schools are this way, Sunday schools are directed largely to our intellect, uh, but if we stop there, we haven't, we haven't gotten where we need to be. The church is a place not only that shapes and forms our intellect, and yes, you do need to bring your intellect to church, all right, we don't park our brains at the door when we come in here, uh, but also, it's a place where our characters are formed. Think about <clears throat> uh, the different programs of the church. Obviously, in preaching, preaching is, you know, me speaking to you and me speaking to both believers and to non-believers. It's mostly speaking to your intellect, to your head. There might be a little bit of, uh, uh, of exhortation toward your will, but there's not a lot of practice that goes on in this room. We hear some things, and the hope is that when we leave here, we begin to try to practice some of the theory that we heard in there. Sunday school is similar. It's mostly directed toward the head. Small groups are where we begin, where we begin to get a little more involved in the work of the heart. Yes, we talk about what the scriptures say, but we also have a certain amount of accountability where we ask each other how we're doing with those things. Here's what the scriptures say. Now what are you doing about it? How did it go with you last week? All right. So there is a, a schooling of the head, but there's a schooling of the heart, and, and I think that's important. I have special relationships with a number of people uh, in the in the history of my time here with with seminarians who've come through here. Uh, ben Ferry, he was at Westminster, and Hannah Kirshen, she was a student at Westminster, and Chris Holland, he was at Palmer Seminary. I'm currently working with Ian Clark, who who is uh, at at Knox Seminary. In each of these students have come to me, and they, I have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with them. Uh, their seminary requires uh, these kind of mentoring relationships with working pastors. And in, in, in that setting, our work is mostly about the heart. Eh, a little bit about the head. 
mostly about what's going on in your life and how are you doing, and a little bit about, well, here's some doctrine and here's some, here's some scriptures that you might want to take a look at. There are more ordinary uh, pastoral counseling and mentoring relationships that I have with individuals. Individuals will come to me. Typically, they come to me because there's some trouble in their life, and we begin to meet one-on-one. There's a little bit of head knowledge in there, but it's mostly about the heart and about how their lives are being lived and uh, what kind of change and what kind of correction needs to happen in there so that they're not suffering the way they are. One-on-one relationships, pastoral relationships, are mostly about the heart and a little bit about the head. Okay, so in our Christian discipleship, we need to be thinking about the head component. We need to know the scriptures. Okay, if you haven't read all the way through the Bible yet, you need to do it. And those of you who've done it probably need to do it on a regular basis. Some people do it every year. Some people do it every three years where you're just you're just reading through that whole thing. All right. I would encourage you to do it. Uh it's the Word of God, um, and, and we need to know that. But in addition to that stuff that we need to know, we also need to be examining our lives, and are our lives being lived according to the Scriptures? We need also to be lifelong learners. Those I, I'm standing in front of a number of educators in this room. Uh, and every educator that I've met has had as their goal, not just raising young people who get to a certain age and stop, but raising people who will then learn for the rest of their lives. Same goes with our Christian life. We need to be lifelong learners. There isn't some point at which you can say, well, you know, I've I've read it all. I've read the whole Bible and I've heard all the sermons that I need to hear. I'm done. Okay. I'm done. That's that's not uh, where we want to be. Dolores Turner. Some of you raise your hand if you knew Dolores Turner. Yeah, Dolores Turner uh, is is the the lady who's responsible for me being in this pulpit. Uh, she was the head of the pastor nominating committee uh, when uh, this church was last looking for uh, a pastor. A very formidable woman, uh, a principal, a public school principal, a very wise woman. Um, and it was interesting, and when I arrived here, she was in some sense in her prime. She was, uh, she was, uh, the, she was on a, on a school board, and she was, uh, in, in her newly retired age. But as I spent more years with her, she began to decline. And her life began to contract. And her activity in the world began to be reduced. But she used to often say to me when I would meet with her, she she would say, I guess God still has something more to teach me. All right? I've heard people say, you know, when you get old, sometimes when, sometimes when you get old, you, you wonder why you're still here, right? And people will say, well, I guess God still has something for me to do, some work for me to do, which which is true. Like when... The word retired does not appear in the Bible. And when God is done with you, he'll take you home. But there are some, there are times in our lives when we are not necessarily, um, someone who's shouldering the burden in the community who is working, uh, in the church. But God isn't done with us yet because actually he's teaching us stuff about himself and about our own heart and about, and about, uh, God's grace. I guess God is still uh, teaching me something, Dolores would 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 often say in her, in her later years. 
I think the church is a school and Christians are lifelong students. And that means that one of our primary character traits should be that we are teachable. That we're teachable. Maybe you've met people who are not teachable. You know the contrast between those who can't teach anything and those who you can teach something. There are certain character traits that are a catalyst for, for learning and there are certain character traits or habits that we have that are impediments to learning. Probably the biggest catalyst to being a lifelong learner is humility. All right. If I'm going to learn something new, it requires a recognition that I don't already have everything mastered, that I don't know everything, that maybe the way that I'm doing something isn't right and someone can correct me or someone can guide me or someone can improve upon me. So humility is, is required uh, if we're going to be teachable. I think also what's required is stillness. Some of us are so busy, we don't have time to spend with God. And it's not just our schedules that are busy, our heads are busy. There's like a lot of noise in our heads. And we're not spending time listening to God. I think we need to be humble, I think we need to be still. I think we also need to be industrious. That was the word that I came up with, that's the opposite of lazy. Learning things is, always takes a certain amount of work, right? If I'm going to study something, it's uh, it's hard work. If I'm going to improve my game, if I'm going to improve the way I'm living, I've I've got to exert myself. So that's that's an important part of being teachable. So humility and stillness and industriousness, and I think probably finally is honesty. I have to be able to. Tell the truth about myself. Let me talk about the backside of this, the impediments to teachability, obviously pride. I mean, if I already know everything, I'm never going to learn anything new. I'm done, right? Busyness, if I fill my life up with so much junk, then I'm never going to have time for God. I'm never going to have time to listen to God. If I'm lazy, slothful. I'm also not going to grow uh, in, in the knowledge of God or, or form in my character. Or if I'm dishonest about who I am, I won't allow myself to be corrected. I believe as Christians we are called to a lifelong discipleship. I think a fundamental character of the church is that it's a school where uh, disciples become teachers and that those teachers then teach new disciples. Obviously, this is a generational thing, and we, we pass it on from generation to generation. The curriculum never changes. Okay, the curriculum is just the Word of God. It's just the Scriptures, and we keep going back to those Scriptures again and again. Some of you have life verses. I always like hearing people's life verses. I've been reading through... Uh, 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 the book of Job uh, recently, and 
there are a lot of very funny, miserable verses in there that I always think would be funny for someone to claim as their life verse. You know, my my bowels are in distress, things like this. Um, and it is the Word of God. Um, my life verse, uh, which which became very real for me in in my teen years is Matthew 5 6 blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled now i don't know what that verse means to you but i'll tell you what it meant to me as a teenager um it, it meant that my desire to know and to understand god more fully my hunger and thirst after knowing God, that it would be satisfied, that God would, that God would grant me satisfaction with that. And it has been, uh, a touchstone of my life, this, this desire to know God and to know Him more fully. Uh, I haven't been filled yet. I mean, you know, there's still, there's, uh, there's still that hunger and still that thirst there. I think the day will come when I will, I will, I will meet Jesus face to face, uh, and then, and then I'll be satisfied and, and filled. But for me, that hunger is there. I hope you have a hunger too for the things of God. Uh, I hope you have a, a willingness to be changed in who you are. I hope you have the ability to learn new things, uh, and to be shaped according to the Word of God. The church is a school, and we are students of the Master. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you would continue to teach us. We thank you for the saints who have gone before us, and we thank you for the ways in which your Holy Spirit has been operating in the church. Thank you for the things that you've already taught us. Lord, I pray that you would continue to give us teachable hearts. I pray that you would continue to allow us to be good learners that we would not only learn things about you, but that we would learn things about ourselves and that we would allow our character and our lives to be shaped more and more to look like Jesus. I do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. All right, last week we skipped the Heidelberg Catechism, so this week is going to seem a little